We looked last uh, Wednesday evening into the Song of Solomon, and um, it was, I believe, a very profitable consideration in that glorious song of love between Christ and His church. I want to this evening look into the 45th Psalm, Psalm 45. It's a very unique psalm among the psalms, as we shall discover. And it is a very blessed psalm for us to ponder, to meditate upon. And if God is pleased to open our hearts to its glorious and wondrous message, there's nothing in this world that could ever compare to it. This psalm, by the way, is in the caption spoken of as a song of loves. Psalm 45. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips, therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of, thy, of the king's enemies whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces whereby... They have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider, and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. For he is thy lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. Well, I think, as in the caption, we have a song of loves. And uh, as we look into the, the psalm, we realize it is a royal wedding psalm as well, the king and his bride being brought together. Now, we're not told in this particular psalm who the king is or who the bridegroom is. 
that is the king who is historically in the background for the song. It's most likely, though, I think as most commentators would think and as uh, many have considered, that it must be Solomon who is in the background of this psalm. And uh, many believe it to be the very springboard of the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. So that like the Song of Solomon, as in the caption, it is a song of loves. But then we cannot help but notice features that cannot apply to a mere man in this Features that can have nothing to do with a mere mortal, if you please. That have to go beyond one who is merely human. And we learn, of course, that in verses 6 and 7, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And of course, as we learn when we look into the New Testament, which is the infallible interpreter of the Old Testament, we know that, of course, the Scriptures are they which testify Christ, as he himself declared. Then we have in Hebrews chapter 1, God the Father speaking to God the Son from this very psalm. So we understand that it applies to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we learn something in the epistle to the Hebrews huge about this psalm then. It is God the Father who moved the psalmist. It is God who moved him to pen as a ready writer. And it's all about the incarnate Son of God and his bride, the redeemed church. And it's spoken to our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul wrote, unto the Son, he saith. So that no matter the historical circumstances uh, concerning the background of its human writer, it's uniquely and divinely concerning the royal wedding of the Son of God and the bride given to him by the Father. It's especially precious. If we have hearts to see, eyes to behold, if we can comprehend the wondrousness of its meaning, if our minds and thoughts weren't so taken up with too many other things, maybe God would be pleased to open some things that are glorious to us. The language of the psalm is so exalted, it's so filled with the highest of description of the king, that it could refer to nothing else but to the royal wedding of the ages. What a glorious wedding that's going to be. We have somewhat the description of it, of course, in the book of Revelation. And it will be the consummate purpose of the ages brought to pass as God has purposed from eternity. The Lord of glory and his bride brought together forever in a loving, living, glorious union of God and man. Some of the Psalms have distinctly messianic portions in them, while other Psalms apply in principle as well to the writer and to us, 
as you find in various psalms in the in the in the in the book of psalms as psalm 40 and psalm 44 there are certain other psalms particularly those of the second psalm 16th psalm 22nd psalm 110th psalm that are very messianic in nature they're specific messianic psalms this one psalm 45 fits into that category and yet in another sense it's very unique among the psalms so we'll need to consider this psalm in two parts lord willing tonight and next wednesday evening in the first part verses one through nine the king is addressed and then in verses 10 through 17 his royal bride is addressed now the writer is taken up with the excelling excellency of the king whom we know to be the king of kings so he writes in the first two verses my heart is indicting a good matter that means he's not simply studying it as a scholar endeavoring to learn the language and certain aspects of truth but rather his heart is taken up with what he is writing my heart my inward being my very soul myself my heart is indicting a good matter i speak of the things which i've made touching the king my tongue is the pen of a ready writer thou art fairer than the children of men grace is poured into thy lips therefore god hath blessed thee forever well the psalmist is drawing upon the beauty of the glorious person of the king indicting this good matter the writing of this psalm comes from a heart that is so overfilled with the sight of the king and we know it to be christ the king that it cannot help but bring glory to the lord himself my heart is indicting a good matter i speak of the things which i have made touching the king my tongue is the pen of a ready writer this good matter is really the greatest of all matters it burst forth from the heart that beholds him coming to know the wondrousness of god's grace in christ coming to behold him in measure as we do coming to recognize what he has done and what we know he shall do and the gloriousness of all things being brought up under his rule we if we're taken up with him we're taken up with that which is eternal if we're taken up with anything else apart from him we're taken up with that which is absolutely empty and perishing and temporary we have a good matter we have the best matter we have the only eternal matter to be taken up with the greatest of all matters and the word indicting my heart is indicting a good matter the word indicting here signifies a gushing forth 
in the Hebrew. A gushing forth. Like what is inside is incapable of being contained and must come out. Must burst forth. But unlike simple, excited enthusiasm that can be very unthinking, very rash, emotionally temporarily moved, the heart ponders deeply and expresses itself with all of the skill and the care and the thoughtfulness of one given to the painstaking task of a trained and skilled writer. And anyone who has written and pondered the subject and gone through it knows how painstaking that can be. And he has the tongue of a ready writer. Such is the case because he is writing upon the greatest subject there is. The king being his only subject. And to express the honor and the glory of the king is his driving desire. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Then, as if the king were suddenly standing there before him in his sight, he addresses him. He addresses him with admiration and praise, as in verse 2. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. He's completely taken up with the king. It is when our hearts are indeed taken up with our Savior. When our hearts are taking up with our blessed Lord. And we consider the glory of His person. And we ponder the wondrousness of His love that spans eternity, that's wider than we could ever possibly reach, deeper than we could ever go, higher than we could ever ascend. His love, wondrous, glorious, depth and height and width. Nothing in this world has any comparison when that love is comprehended by a sinner saved by the grace of God, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is often pleased to reveal himself to the hearts of those who are taken up with him. It's no marvel that so many professing to be Christians that find their desire and activities only in this world, they never know communion with him. They're not taken up with him. They're taken up with other things. What would it be if one truly walked with him and never be satisfied apart from him and apart from the things of him? Let our hearts cry out to God to know him, to have our heart burst forth with the desire to praise and honor and magnify him. And oh, for more of this, 
more of Christ, more of Him. When we seek His Word, when we come to Him and call upon Him in prayer, desire to commune with Him in secret, and we meditate on the glories and the beauties that are unfolded to us in the Word of God and by the Holy Spirit concerning the King, King Messiah, our blessed Savior. And consider the meaning of His cross and the glorious and assured reality of His crown. And we gather together to hear Him preached. And that should be our desire when we come together. Lord, be in our midst. Open my heart. Show me Thyself. Cause Thy truth to enter into my being. Then nothing else will be more important or take precedence over that which is so wondrous. The knowledge, communion with the King, our blessed Savior, the King of salvation, the King of glory, the King who shall reign forever. Actually, also in verse 2 begins the description of his person, his person from a heart that's taken up with him, him alone. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Well, here the psalmist realizes that all perfection meets in him, in the king. All perfection in him. So much so that it could not meet in any mere man. But it meets in Him, in the King. So transcendently glorious that He is fairer than the children of men. It's that altogether lovely expression in the Song of Solomon. In all of His character, in all of His regal reign, in all that He is and all that He is. He, he does. His character is glorious. The perfections all meet in this one. He is so rare. So perfect. As he's described in scripture also without blot. Without spot. Without blemish. That true faith finds no comparison to satisfy the soul, can find nothing to compare to him. So Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 7, Unto you that believe, he is precious. That tells us something about a genuine believer, doesn't it? That tells us something about one who is truly begotten of God and beholds him in their soul and has come to hear the grace of his lips, his truth and his word, and come to realize there's nothing to compare to this. Unto you which believe, he is precious. That means extremely rare. He is the rarest of all. The highest desired. That which is most precious to us is that which means the most to us. And unto you which believe, he is precious. 
And since grace has its highest manifestation in his person, it can only find its highest expression in his words. In the words of the king, grace is poured into thy lips. You see, his word carries a power that can heal all ills. So the centurion could say to him, speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. His word can calm us in the midst of the greatest storms of life. Strong enough to bring us down and would seem like would destroy us, but for His gracious that we realize cannot fail us. In the storms of life, He can command peace be still. How many times God's people have realized that blessed word in the midst of great trouble and difficulties and trials. Peace, be still. Grace is poured into thy lips. No enemy can ever overcome, but be overcome when they have to say, never man spake like this man. The weary rest and the heart seizes its raging when his voice is heard. In Isaiah chapter 50, Seven centuries before the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's declared that he's able to speak a word in season to him that is weary. And oh, the seasons, the season when we have been brought under conviction and made to realize we're wretched, sinful. God is not the one we've sought. It's our own ways and our own things. And vile has been our lives and our course in this world. And we are brought low and we're brought to feel the incredible, horrific grief of our own sinfulness. And in that weary season, when we hear his word, come unto me. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a word spoken to the weary in season. And his voice. His voice will raise men from the dead. The dead, when he comes, that are in the grave, shall hear the voice of the Son of God. But those who are spiritually dead and brought to that resurrection spiritually now hear his voice. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. One day, the sword of his mouth will banish every enemy and bring eternal peace when his glorious kingdom is manifested. All of these 
wondrous, rare, perfect endowments in the man, Christ Jesus, are the reason that he is of God blessed forever and the manifestations that he is so. But he is fairer than the children of men and he is more than a man. Man in all of the characteristics of a human accepting sin, all the properties of human nature accepting sin, but God manifest in the flesh. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. There will come a perfect and a victorious reign. And a perfect and, intorious, uh, and uh, victorious reign can only come by a perfect king. An altogether perfect king. I think of the prophecies that were given to David through the prophets uh, that spoke with him like the prophet Gad in the Old Testament and other prophetic utterances and he himself was given the prophetic gift. And when he beholds this one who shall come through him, what manner of man is this? He says, what manner of man is this? Glorious indeed. And God makes known to him as through David, through Jeremiah, and uh, the prophets that he shall reign in perfect righteousness, justice. A perfect reign, no one else, no man, no matter how, how good a ruler, no matter how apt has the ability, for they have not the character that is perfect, as does he. He is an altogether perfect king, and the one who shall have an altogether perfect reign. So in verses 3 through 5. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Well, of course, his sword is the sword of justice, true justice. And none of the enemies of God and truth can ever finally stand. His justice will be carried out. I know uh, my grandmother and Others who uh, who knew the Lord and and, uh, and loved the Lord and saw a wicked world and the world has always had its wicked aspects and its wickedness and uh, so uh, this, the old ones talked about a day of reckoning. <laughs> well, it will come. There will come a day of judgment, and in the day of judgment, He is the judge, and His justice is perfect. He shall judge the world as Paul preached to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17 in righteousness. Perfect righteousness. 
So his sword indeed is the sword of justice. And none of the enemies of God and of truth shall stand. And the battle is his battle. And the victory is his victory. And all the skill to win is taught of himself, comes from him. He needs no war counselors. He needs none to come and tell him how to conduct his kingly reign or his battles. He shall teach himself. It comes from him. Thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. But his sword is two-edged. His sword brings not only the execution of justice, his sword will bring salvation as well. Salvation. As well as justice. And if the sword of his justice awaits, if the sword of his justice has not yet been unsheathed, which it shall be, on an unsuspecting world, yet the sword of his grace must first do its work. Piercing into the hearts of enemies who will become eternal friends. As in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. Oh, listen to Saul of Tarsus, who would have stamped out his name, who would have destroyed all who called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul. Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. What a wondrous salvation. He loved that one who hated him. It's hard for us to realize that we by nature hated God, wanted our way. But then, what a blessing when the sword of his word comes and he begins to do his work in us, his work by grace. He prospers. He is unfailingly victorious because of what is in him and what's being established by him, again in verse 4, and in thy majesty, Ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. He fights with and he fights for truth, meekness, righteousness. This is not speaking of a conventional warfare. This is not speaking of of swords and guns and tanks and planes. but one which aims at conquering the hearts of men. 
and bringing them under himself, which he is able to do. It is the sword of his word. It is the gospel God has given us, which declares the defeat of his enemies and causes the people to fall under him, as in verse 5. That's a very important thing when you read about the people in Scripture in relation to God. The people. That's talking about those who are in a covenantal relation with God. And those who aren't, those who are outside this relation with Him, not a people. Doesn't mean they don't exist. But that becomes biblical language. So that those who are separated from him are called not a people in Scripture. And those in the eternal covenant, the new covenant with him, are called my people and the people. As Jeremiah, when he speaks of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 33, I will be their God and they shall be my people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter writes, which involves those who are saved from among the heathen, as well as those saved, the remnant of the Jewish nation. Ye, uh, ye are a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness, into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. It's a wondrous thing to be brought under him as the people, to be his, to belong to him. The enemies, the dark spiritual rulers of this world, the enemies with their diabolical leader are defeated. And the people are brought under him all by the same means, by the cross. By the cross. In John chapter 12, when the Lord Jesus is anticipating the coming of the cross, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. The enemies are defeated. The people are brought under him. As in Colossians 2, 14 and 15, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, in the cross. He triumphs over his enemies. By the cross, he brings us under himself as the people. The truth. The truth. Ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. He is the truth. I am, he can say, the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He is the truth 
concerning God. All the truth about God is in him. I am the truth. And in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Meekness. Meekness is his character. Look at the rulers of the world. Look at the Napoleons. Look at the Hitlers. Look at those who had great power in the world. They didn't have meekness. They didn't rule in meekness. Their character was not meek. They were crushers. They were those who wanted to defeat and conquer by massive force and power. They didn't have meekness. But he has meekness. Meekness is his character. Who both defeated the enemy and subdues us. Not by almighty power. Not by crushing us. But by almighty grace. And almighty love. Isn't that a wondrous thing? Secured forever by the greatest of humility. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And he rules in righteousness. And what is so incredibly wondrous is that he bestows his righteousness to those he brings under him. Those who come truly to know him. Those who belong to him, look to him, trust in him. Find him there eternal portion he gives them his righteousness he has made him God the Father made him to be sin for us he who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him he has perfect righteousness he imputes it to us when we come to him we had none of our own there is none righteous no not one we didn't have anything to bring He gives us his own righteousness. And one could write thus. Christ's humiliation is his majesty. Wow, that's quite a statement when you think about what he's saying. Christ's humiliation. Not crushing power. Christ's humiliation is his majesty. And his sharpest weapon is his all-penetrating love. And his cross, his chariot of victory and throne of dominion. What a statement to ponder. What a statement to consider. How glorious indeed his sharpest, his all-penetrating love. That's what defeats us. His love. That's what brings us to be His and to want to glorify Him and to trust Him through all the difficulties and the changes that we come through in life. His all-penetrating love, all made known to us how God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, bringing us by his humility, by his love, to belong to him. Almighty love conquered us and brought us unto him.
His gospel dispersed in the world carries the power gained only of himself that conquers the hearts of men by grace and declares the acquisition of his righteousness alone for those who believe to the saving of the soul. A divinely imputed righteousness given to his royal subjects. The clothing of his regal bride. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorneth herself with her ornaments, as a bride, etc. I think that's Isaiah 61, verse 10, if I'm not mistaken. Speaking of the church here, his bride, his redeemed. Everything in him is of perfect beauty, delightful to the spiritual senses of his people, who know that for the gladness of his heart and the redeeming of his eternal bride, he came out of the ivory palaces into this world of woe. As in verse 8. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they've made thee glad. And who is he in verses 6 and 7? Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. You see, his reign, R-E-I-G-N, cannot help but be perfect. In perfect righteousness. Because as in verse 6, he is God. He is God who's come to us in human flesh. The deity of our Savior declared in the Old Testament as well. He's even called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace in Isaiah chapter 9. But He is not only God. He is man, as we learn in verse 7. And yet He is one, one Lord, Jesus Christ, God, manifest in the flesh. Blinded eyes, Blinded minds cannot see his eternal deity and the union of eternal deity and a human manhood whom angels worship and his people love and adore. And so look into Hebrews 1. We're getting ready to conclude this. And we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 1 which draws, of course, upon the 45th Psalm. Hebrews chapter 1, and in verses 6 through 12. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, 
and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire, but, in contrast, but under the sun, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up. And they shall be changed. But thou art the same. And thy years shall not fail. When in your soul you hear his word called the voice of the Son of God. And you behold with the eye of faith his cross is the only answer for your sin and the only way to be reconciled to God. And you fall in faith as it were before Him. When you become conquered by His grace and His love alone, it's because you're part of His royal bride whom He has betrothed to Himself forever. And what a glorious consummation is coming for those who are in Christ. We can face the difficulties of this world because we know what's coming. We can face the hard things when we realize and recognize all of this is going to be over. We're none of us going to stay here. It's going to be brought to a conclusion that by God's grace, those who are in Christ are all going to be gathered unto Him for a union of God and man that was purposed from eternity. And the glory of it we cannot now know. But the hope of it is to be in us. May God bless the ministry of His Holy Word.